Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Centerpoint. Uh, this is the systematic theology side of our menu offering. Um, tonight we are working through effectual calling. And this is our third um, lecture. Our next one will be regeneration. And tonight, I, as I said, I'll be looking at effective calling. So if you have your notes with me, with you, um, please get ready to follow along. But before we get started, let me just open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening indebted to you for the tremendous mercy and grace that you've showered on each one of us. And we pray that you would um, draw our hearts to you so that as we think about this important topic tonight, that you would uh, speak to us through your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might become more like Jesus Christ. Bless the other teachers tonight and each one of us here. May we honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as Derek mentioned last week, uh, this part of our theology series, we are looking at the application of salvation. And I was able to dig around and find a few quotes that are pertinent to our topic tonight. I kind of want to open with those. There's one on the front of uh, your notes tonight that's from Herman Bavink, which is a great Dutch systematician. Um, He says... uh, and I actually don't have it in front of me. Let me just grab one. Um, I paraphrased, but you don't want to mess with the Dutch on things, so I want to get them right. Um, Baving says, take away its application, and redemption is not redemption. Um, Derek has mentioned it a few times, and it's one of my favorite quotes, but from Calvin. Calvin says this, First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. And one contemporary theologian, John Frame, who teaches at RTS in Orlando, he says this, Although the atoning work of Christ is complete, God has much to do in each and for each one of us. So the, the point is that while Christ redeems us, there is still a job to be done. And that's essentially what we're looking at as we talk about the application of redemption. And if you're a believer, you know that. You know that you have been redeemed, but you know that there's still sin and that needs to be eradicated and put to death in your own life. Well, I want to um, use, open up with a story tonight with uh, Dr. Thomas being gone. I think uh, I, I might be able to get away with this, but I saw Rosemary here, so that's probably not going to happen. You know, Carl Bart gets a hard rap, a bad rap um, in here, and for most reasons that's right. Well, when Carl Bart, and Carl Bart is a Swiss theologian, probably of the left leaning, well, definitely of the left leaning, I want to make sure I get that on audio so when Derek hears this, he's not worried I'm leading you all astray. But Carl Bart was a, a Swiss theologian that um, taught in Germany and actually faced up to the Nazis. He was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, systematic theologian. But Bonhoeffer, or Bart, when he came to America in 1962, he was asked in a public forum, Are you a Christian? And he responded, yes. And then the questioner then followed that up with, well, then tell us about your salvation experience. And without missing a beat, Bart said, well, it happened one afternoon in AD 34 when Christ died on the cross. And it's right. 
That's right. Um, each one of us that calls Christ our Lord and Savior, that's when we were saved. But it doesn't tell the full story. There's more to it. Um, and if you look at the notes here, I, I've kind of separated up. And you can find this right in Ephesians. Um, salvation planned, salvation accomplished, salvation applied. And we could go on and talk about salvation secured in eternity. But in Ephesians 1.4 it says, Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before him. This is indicating our salvation was planned in the Godhead before creation. Salvation accomplished in Ephesians 1 7 talks says, In him we have redemption through his blood, this forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this verse speaks to the redemption that Christ accomplished in space and time on the cross. And then we have salvation applied in verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this sealing, this work of the Holy Spirit, is what takes place in each one of us today if we call Christ Lord. And this is where we're really going to locate a lot of our, our time tonight, is this third aspect of salvation, the existential part, what each one of us experiences on a day-to-day basis. So I want to just break it down um, in a number of points. The first one being, well, what kind of call are we talking about here? This effectual call, what, what do we mean by that? Well, there are two types of calls. There's a general call and there's the effectual call. And I'm going to spend most of the time, well, 98% of the time talking about the effectual part of it. The, the general call is basically that God leaves um, evidences of his call, of his glory, um, of his, uh, cre- in his creation for us. And that's why we come to verses that say, you know, many are called but few are chosen. There is a general call for all people to come to God. But as we know, not everyone comes to Christ. So to think about this a little bit more, there are a variety of calls or, that take place if you're a believer. Um, I've listed four here, and I'm getting this from John Murray, and as you'll see, I am essentially cribbing all my material from John Murray and Sinclair Ferguson, um, uh, two great Scottish theologians. So, um, as uh, one person has said, uh, there's no original thoughts here. If, when you claim you have an original thought, you've just forgot where you read it from. And so, I'm not making any, I'm not taking any liberties here. I'm acknowledging from the outset, I'm leaning heavily on Murray and Ferguson. Well, Murray explains that as we're redeemed, there are several applications of God's call in our lives. And if we look at the first one here, the first call is to our vocation. And this aspect of God's call just refers to particular people and the relations that we're involved in. God calls us to particular professions. Um, Think about your marriage. If you're married, God calls you to a particular person, to a particular family. That is a calling. It may even be to singleness. And if we look here at 1 Corinthians 7, um, I'll just read uh, this for us. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, 1 Corinthians 7 specifies that there are particular points in life in which God places us. 
And you can think about every relationship, every um, occupation that you've had. That has been because of God calling you and placing you there. Well, there's a second um, variety of this application of God's call, and that's a special office. Um, You think here about the office of a deacon or an elder or um, ministers. Those are special offices within the church to which God calls particular people. You see this particularly when Paul opens his letters. He usually gives a little bit of his credentials. In Romans 1, for instance, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So here he is, Paul saying, I'm called to be an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel of God. So we are called in vocation, sometimes for select people to a special office. And here in the third one, there is the general call of the gospel. Each one of us as believers is given that duty and great responsibility to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. God's call can be heard as the gospel goes out in our messages that we hear on Sundays as we witness to other people, to our co-workers, to our family members. God's call is also a gospel call. And so in your notes, I think I have Proverbs 8 there. And there we can read it. To you, O man, I call... And my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. And we can turn to so many other passages in scripture which talks about and which points to God calling people to himself for the hope that they would be converted. Well, those are three specific applications of God's call. I want to look at the one tonight that is involved in our order of salvation, which is the effectual call. Let me begin with a definition from John Murray. Uh, Murray says this, Calling is the efficacious summons on the part of God the Father in accordance with and in pursuance of his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus, addressed to sinners dead and trespasses and sins, a call that ushers them into fellowship with Christ and into the possession of the salvation of which he, Christ, is the embodiment. Murray can be a heavy writer. He's actually, English is his original language, but he can be very um, opaque. Um, J.A. Packer has said that uh, were Murray more clear-sighted in his writing, he would have been as popular as C.S. Lewis. He's got that kind of depth to him, but it just didn't come out as clearly. And I've, at the back on the further reading, I've put two of his works down because if you have the patience, and I would urge it, Murray is one of my favorite theologians. He is rich. Um, he can pack in six pages um, what it takes other theologians to put in a hundred. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's, it's worth it. So here is his definition of what effectual calling is. And we see this rooted in Romans 8, which is really the capstone passage whenever we start thinking about the order of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here you see four particular aspects of the order of salvation. We are predestined, we are called, we are then justified, and then we are glorified. 
And it's important, we'll get to this, it's very important that we get the order right. Um, I'll, I'll mention some, there's some people, some Christians that believe that calling is not even part of, it shouldn't be part of um, the way that we think about how we become believers. But it's um, hopefully become clear that why this is such a critical part of our theology and why it has so much pastoral implications as well. Well, the action by which God makes his people the partakers of redemption is that of summons. God summons us, but this is not like a subpoena. We don't know. It's not going to come out of nowhere by, from someone that we don't know that is after us in a, in, in a bad sense. There is a sense in which we don't see it coming, though. Nor is an effectual call from God like an Evite. You get the Evite to Lake Day or whatever, and you have the option, yes, I'll go, no, I won't, or maybe give me some time to think about it. When God calls you, you become a believer there and then. God's calling is that powerful. It, um, it fulfills what it intends to do. So God's word cannot fail. When God speaks, it fulfills God's purpose. So that is what is God's call, what is effectual call. Then I want to ask who calls, and this seems like a really easy answer. We just told us it's God's call. Yes, it is God's call, but... Who is the author? Who calls? Who summons each one of us to redemption? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm already starting to kind of hint who the, the author of the call is. It's the father of Jesus Christ. And I've put down here Short Catechism question 31. I also want to make it clear that while the Short Catechism says it's God's spirit, I'm not denying that. I want to make that clear. I am not denying that. But the biblical evidence supports the Father as the one that gives the call. Um, I'll speak a little bit more about the, the Spirit's role. But it is the Father that issues the call. So I have done here, really. Um, yeah, it's God the Father. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says this. There are many verses in the New Testament which indicate that the source of our invocation to become Christians lies in the Father. John Murray says, God the Father is specifically the author. This aspect of biblical teaching is too frequently unobserved. And it is strange that students of scripture should overlook it and neglect it. Well, let me back this up with scripture. And I've listed some verses here, but let me just focus on three in particular. And I've already read the one from 1 Corinthians 1.9. God the Father is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul also writes in Galatians 1.15-16. But when he, the Father, who had set me apart, Paul speaking, set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son. It's the father's son that Paul's speaking about to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then I have Jude 1 also mine. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, here's just a smattering of biblical verses that point to why it's important and why scripture refers to God the Father. And it is important because we struggle with the idea that when we think about redemption, we think about who saves us, Jesus is front and center. Jesus, in many of our theologies, does all the heavy lifting so that the Father becomes more of a bystander in this. And when you combine this with the fact that 
Um, we have earthly fathers. It's very easy to, to focus on Jesus so much so that we actually marginalize the father. Many of us, all of us have earthly fathers that, and we know them. But whenever we think about how we understand our heavenly father, don't we always oftentimes read it through the lens of our earthly father? And even if we don't have an earthly father that is present, even that becomes a grid through which we understand God as our heavenly father. Well, he's absent, he's not here. It's almost impossible not to read our, our earthly father position, that paternal position back onto God. And then if you combine that with the fact that when we think about salvation, it tends to be, we may not voice it this way, but Jesus does all the work and the Father maybe hesitatingly or begrudgingly allows Jesus to to redeem us. That is so far from the truth. And this is why the, the doctrine of the effectual call is such an important doctrine because it helps clear up the distortion that we have in our minds. Um... In his journal, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher and theologian, points out why this can be so problematic for us. Let me just read this from his journal. The greatest danger for a child where religion is concerned, and this, this hits me hard as, as a young father. The greatest danger for a child where religion is concerned. The greatest danger is not that his father or tutor should be a free thinker, not even his being a hypocrite. No, the danger lies in his being a pious, God-fearing man, and in the child being convinced thereof, but that he should nevertheless notice that deep in his father's soul there lies hidden an unrest, which consequently not even the fear of God and piety could calm. The danger is that the child in that situation is almost provoked to draw a conclusion about God, that God is not infinite love. That's scary. Even as, as fathers, we could be the most pious, um, the most biblically informed men, but our children can still see that place where sin remains, and that can cause them to take that, um, that doubt and reflect it back onto God. And that's why it's so important that we get a proper doctrine of God the Father back in our own theologies to help as an antidote to that. More so, we have to think that when we think about effectual calling, this is not Jesus doing the work. It is the Father calling us to embrace. The Father is calling us into a loving relationship with him. And that is so rich. Christ doesn't just redeem us from our sins. Christ redeems us because he's fulfilling God, the Father's call, to get those people and bring them to him. And maybe we don't think about it that way. We come to church and we maybe think that we're here to worship Jesus for all the work and the eternally valuable work that he's done for us. It's the Father that started it by calling us. That call is fulfilled by Christ. So it's not as though the Father stands um, at the side of the field watching Christ do all the work. The Father is part and parcel of that work. And the Son is commissioned to do that. Well, number three, well, what are we called from? Let's get, put a little bit more meat on the bones. Well, we're called from death to life. Um, this is important. This is where it gets a little bit, this doctrine becomes controversial in many ways. John five twenty five says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What we see in John here is that 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This is what we're going to see as a refrain throughout the New Testament. It's dead people are hearing the voice of God. There's a paradox here. How can dead people hear the voice of the living? Well, let me go forward here. There's also, we're, not, we're called from death to life, but we're also called from blindness to sight. In 1 Peter 2.9 Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a called race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's this idea here that not only are we called out of death into life, but we are called out of blindness. There are many people that think, well, if I can just understand who Jesus is, and if I can understand the scripture, then I can make a rational decision, logically work through the details, and then I'll be able to um, either accept or reject God. What Peter's telling us here is, no, you're not only dead in your trespasses and sins, but you're blind. You can't even make sense of scripture until the light of the gospel comes in. So we're called from death to life, blindness to sight. The question, what are we called from, helps answer the question, who does God call? We're not, God doesn't call respectable um, suburban people that have everything sorted out. God calls sinners who are dead. God calls wicked people. And if I was to take a show of hands, that would mean that all of us would have to put our hands up. Because we're all wicked sinners. None of us are respectable enough to merit God's grace. None of us have done enough in our lives to merit God's grace. Only God's grace can redeem us from sin and from blindness. Uh, Matthew 9.13 says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So not only does it tell us what we're called from, we are called from death to life. It also tells us we're not, God doesn't call the mostly dead or the partially dead. Uh, we have got to get this idea into our head that we were completely dead. Um, a humorous illustration of, has everyone seen The Princess Bride? Everyone's seen The Princess Bride. Has anyone not seen The Princess Bride? Okay, there's one or two. Okay, go see. It's a good show. I watched it when I was younger and enjoyed it. Well, there's this one scene, and ego, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Inigo Montoyo, he takes Wesley. Wesley's this main character and he's chasing after Buttercup. Great names. Um, Buttercup is the girl. She has been uh, kidnapped by Prince Humperdinck. And so Wesley sets off on this voyage to capture her back. Well, um, Wesley gets captured and puts in the pit of despair where he is um, tortured and uh, killed. So we're led to believe. So Wesley's friends, Nigo and the giant, I can't remember his name. Does anyone know? Fez, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, so they take him to Miracle Max. And Miracle Max is this, uh, he does miracles. <laughs> they take him to Miracle Max and uh, they're like, our friend is dead. Can you help him? So Miracle Max, played by um, Billy Crystal, um, says, okay, bring him in, bring him in. And so as Max look, looks him over, he says, well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. All dead, well, with all dead, there's only, one, there's only usually one thing that you can do. And an ego says, well, what's that? Well, you go through his clothes and you get his money. Um, it's a great scene, but it's not an accurate portrayal at all about our spiritual condition. We're not mostly dead. We're not partially dead. We are completely dead. 
God calls dead people and he calls sinners to himself. Well, my fourth point is how God calls. And this is where we focus a little bit more on some of the biblical data here. The Hebrew verb is karah. I had to get Dr. Davis to make sure I had it, was saying it right beforehand. But the Hebrew word karah means both to name and to summon. God speaks and the world is called into existence. We see this um, amazingly in the, the opening passage of the Old Testament. God called the light day and the darkness he called light. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In Genesis 1.8. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then two verses later, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. We see in God's creation, when God calls something, he calls it into existence. If you remember back to when Dr. Thomas did the doctrine of creation, this was in the Latin, it was ex nihilo, out of nothing. When God calls or summons not only creation into existence he calls it out of nothing in the same way there is nothing in us but God calls our salvation there's nothing already in in the bank account that we can offer God he calls us into existence God also speaks and the people of Israel are formed God's words have a creative power not only that but God's word has a life giving power I want to just turn to um, a passage in Ezekiel 37 It's one of the most amazing, um, and it pictorializes so well God's creative and life-giving power here. Um, I won't read the entire passage, but in verse 4, we read, Then he said to me, God said to me, prophesy over these bones. We're talking about the valley of dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you will cause, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This amazing uh, picture that there's valley of dry bones, and God puts sinews on top of the bones, and then skin, and then puts breath in this body. And it's, it's just a great picture of what God does in, in effectual calling. There is no life in us. And God makes us into someone, a spiritual and redeemed person. In the New Testament, we have another fantastic picture of what this looks like. And it's amazing to have these passages in Scripture that can give our doctrine just a density, a biblical density to help us imagine how God deals with us. In John 11, uh, there's 44 verses which deal with Lazarus and Jesus predicting his own um, resurrection from the dead. But Jesus loved this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he wasn't in Bethany where they lived, but Lazarus had passed. And Jesus is coming into Bethany. It's been four days since Lazarus had passed away. His body was already starting to rot, decompose. And uh, one of the sisters even said there was an odor that would already be there. And Jesus comes. And we have that enigmatic, one of the shortest you know, verse in the Bible that says Jesus wept. Jesus truly loved Lazarus. And in verse 43, Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. A dead person, rotting, stinking. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. 
It's that kind of life-giving power that God, that Jesus has. We see it in creation. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in, um, you know, spectacularly in John. The man who died, the passage says, came out. Lazarus wasn't partially dead. Lazarus was completely dead and Jesus calls him forth. God's word have a life-giving power. Now this brings up the paradox. How can the dead hear the voice of the living? God calls Lazarus. There's no request. He doesn't knock on the tomb and say, Lazarus, if you're in there and there's still a little bit of breath, come on out. It's time, you know, stop faking it. Come on out. Um, There's no request. There's no cooperation. There's no cooperation whatsoever. This is a unilateral move on the part of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls Lazarus and with his words, Lazarus comes back to life. And he walks out of the tomb. And isn't that just an amazing picture of what God does for us? In the same way that Lazarus was brought physically from the dead, when Jesus, through God's call, the Father's call, and we hear it, we're brought into spiritual life. That's what it's like. We're not knocking on the door or um, working out whether or not we're going to choose Jesus. That call comes in first. And that call brings life, brings us out of death, and brings us into the family of God. And as I mentioned towards the start, some people struggle with that idea that there is a call. Um, They don't want God to call us because they believe, well, that takes away my freedom to be able to decide. That takes away my ability to choose. And many of us may have struggled with that. And I don't want to downplay that's a legitimate concern. But I think what it does, whenever we start to think that um, we cooperate with God in our salvation, that we choose God or we take out our hand, and God take, you know, offers his hand and that we cooperate in that way, we do two things primarily. We undermine the amazing impact of God's grace and how powerful it is that it is life-giving, that it does create. And we also undervalue the power of our own sin. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. There was no ability to bring life forth. Our salvation requires new life. R.C. Sproul says it this way, dead people don't have a tendency to cooperate. Dead people don't cooperate. And so I want to make that point that when Paul talks in Ephesians and when other verses mention that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, there was absolutely no ability for us to choose God. And that's why effectual calling is so amazing. God's calling us. He wants fellowship with us. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Here the great paradox of calling is illustrated in the, uh, the, the picture of Lazarus. For how can dead man hear? But he who calls them creates in them the ability to respond so that in the very act of his calling, he brings them into new life. It's this idea as we see in creation, as we see in Ezekiel, God breathes life into us when he calls. His call, it comes as his breath and it gives us life. God's calling gives us life. Well, it's about time I threw in some theological uh, concepts here. Um, I'd be in trouble if I didn't turn to systematic theology, um, given this is systematic theology class. But there are two terms here, monergism or synergism. And essentially, this comes from the Greek. Mono means one. Ergo is, talks about work. Monergism literally means one work. Synergism roughly translates as to work with. 
And when we think about a factual call, we're thinking in the category of monergism. This is one work. Our redemption is, God, is the monergistic work of God. It's unilateral. We have nothing to play in it in our redemption. Now, in our sanctification, we can talk about sanctif- or synergism. We work with God. You know, there's passages in Philippians that he that began a good work and you will complete it. And there's other passages that talk about how we, you know, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's where synergism can rightly be attributed to our, you know, our, our salvation, but not when it begins. When it begins, it's monergistic. It's one work, and that's the work of God. To make it a little bit more down to earth, it comes down to this one theological question. Are we talking about cooperative grace or operative grace? Are we cooperating with God's grace, or is it one operative grace that does all the heavy lifting? I want to say that it's operative grace. There's no such thing as cooperative grace, and at least I don't see it in Scripture. And the Reformed tradition, now this is, this is the stuff they fought about in the 16th century. The Catholics believe in cooperative grace. Even the Lutherans sometimes struggle with it. But if we were Reformed, and as we see it in Scripture, monergism is, is one of the chief tenets in our, in our understanding of Scripture. In other words, when the Father calls a sinner out of death and out of blindness, does he only contribute enough to kind of push us along? Or does he do all the work in our redemption? And I want to say it's the latter. We don't work hand in hand with God in our salvation. This is what we sing about on Sundays. Charles Wesley's hymn, one of my favorites. One of the verses goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Where did that ray come from? I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. A wonderful way of putting it into song, what happens. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The chains fall off. You go free. After that diffusing ray comes in and quickens you. It's a great way of singing our theology. Well, this is, uh, takes us to your next point. Reformed theology's emphasis well, Reformed theology takes seriously our spiritual death, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and Reformed theology takes seriously our spiritual birth and freedom. Um, to many people, and I hope this doesn't come across this way, I hope this doesn't come across as mechanistic, as though, um, well, this just sounds like I'm just a bystander in all this, and, and, and God strips the gears. He comes in, um, Dr. Kelly's expression uh, from RTS Charlotte, that when God calls us, he strips the gears from our personality so that we're not the same person. No, God doesn't do that. If you, you see throughout Scripture, and if, it's wonderful to see it in the Gospel of John, um, the language of the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they recognize that accent. It's not that God comes in and strips the gears and, and you know, forces um, his grace upon us. One terrible phrase that... Um, an opponent of Reformed theology has used is that, and he's actually attributed to Jonathan Edwards, the great American uh, theologian, has said that effectual call is tantamount to the holy rape of the soul. That when God effectually calls us, it's a holy rape because we are forced into it. I think that misconstrues effectual call and scripture tremendously. When we see what the way that we are presented in scripture that we're dead in our sins and trespasses that we were wicked that we were blind and what God does is calls us out of death into life and gives us sight 
And it brings us into fellowship with Christ and helps us. There's anything but a holy rape going on. So when God calls us, he whispers to us. And if David Massey was here, I think he would amen this. Um, Regeneration precedes faith. Um, This is why when we talk about salvation, we make clear that we don't accept Jesus into our heart, but that the Father calls us into his love. And this is important when we're evangelizing our kids. We're not encouraging them to accept Jesus into their hearts. We're asking them to look upon what the Father has done and do you believe what Jesus has done for you? You don't accept Jesus into your heart. I don't find it in Scripture. Um, If Jesus has called you, he's already there when you assent to the Holy Spirit's working. So, it's the other way around. We would want to say that to become a Christian, one has to choose Christ. Uh, we don't choose Christ. When we, we're like Nicodemus. We have to be born again, and that's something we can't rebirth ourselves. It has to be a dynamic work of the Holy Spirit in us. So God's call is all of grace. It's entirely unmerited, and it's, and it's not achieved naturally. It's achieved supernaturally. There are some amazing um, ways in which we can press this forward. Um, we want to think about how God calls us. There's, of course, there's um, in John, the good shepherd, the, the sheep know his voice and they follow him. They don't run from him. C.S. Lewis also has this great rejoinder to those that think this is unfair, that God takes away our freedom when he does this. C.S. Lewis, who's eminently quotable, puts it this way. The hardness of God or the perceived hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man and his compulsion is our liberation. To those people that want to say that this is unfair, that God takes away our freedom by calling us, how would you rather want it to be? If God doesn't call us, we remain in our trespasses and sins and dead. For God to call us is the greatest act of condescension and love. He calls us from eternity. His son comes, dies on the cross, and we get to hear the gospel and belief. Effectual calling is one of them. It's, it's God's love letter, the Father's love letter to us. And I hope that each one of us has heard it and responded to it. Let me finish here just with a quote and, um, from Augustine and then from a word from the Psalter. Augustine thinking about uh, Psalm 69, and we can easily think about uh, the, the Good Shepherd motif in John. Lord, you first sought me out and brought me back on your shoulder. It's this idea that we are lost. The Shepherd comes, lifts us up, puts us on his shoulder, and carries us. This is love. This is love. And then in the Psalter, which is just a good way to finish this aspect of our series, is in praise. Uh, The Psalter in the hymnal number 498 says this, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Saviour true. No, I was found of thee. And when we have a good understanding of God's grace, when we read the scripture and our eyes are enlightened to it, we begin to see that effectual call is God's pursuit of us. God comes running after us. And it's just a beautiful picture. And I hope that if effectual calling was a dry, arid doctrine, that after tonight, and I recommend you to read Murray and Ferguson and follow up some of these verses, that it becomes rich and alive in the way that we think about who the Father is and what he's done for us in our redemption. 
Well, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we magnify your name tonight. You love us and you have called us to yourself. You have sent your son Jesus Christ to accomplish our salvation. You give us your Holy Spirit to apply the many benefits that come from your call. And we praise you, Holy Father, because were it not for your call that secured our redemption, we would still be stuck fast in a pit. We would be stuck fast in sin and trespasses. But Lord, you have sent the quickening ray and you deliver us. Our shackles have come off and we walk freely in liberation being a child of the King. Lord, remind us what that looks like. Remind us to live that way day by day. And may we not neglect to give you, our Heavenly Father, great praise and worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.